Lecture notes, what can I know, consepistemology. The assigned textbook reading for this module is Vaughn chapter 11. Part one, Kant. Full disclosure, Kant is perhaps my favorite of the philosophers we will study for this course. Kant is also a tremendously systematic thinker, which can make him difficult to study in an intro class. Systematic in this context means that all of Kant's thought holds together in one giant overarching system, and it's very difficult to pull out little bits and pieces of the system and try to understand them separate from their place in the overarching whole. We're going to mostly talk about Kant's epistemology, his theory of knowledge, and Kant's moral theory, his ethics. But before we get into those details, I want to give you three questions Kant poses in one of his first major books, The Critique of Pure Reason. First, what can I know? Second, what must I do? Third, what may I hope? I think these three questions are a beautiful encapsulation of some of philosophy's most important questions. First, epistemology. What is it possible for humans to know? Second, ethics. What obligations do we have? How are we to act? And third, by hope, what may I hope? Kant refers to God and the afterlife. He's asking if we can hope in the existence of a God who will correct the injustices of this world. Of course, these aren't the only philosophical questions, but if I had to give you just three questions to summarize philosophy, I think I might choose these three. And certainly these three questions are hugely motivating for Kant, and I'm going to structure our notes in response to these questions. Part two, what can I know? Kantian epistemology. Kant's epistemology is in large part a reaction to Hume. Kant famously wrote that Hume, quote, woke him from his dogmatic slumbers, end quote, which is a way of saying that he was happily buried in his professorial work. And then he read Hume and encountered Hume's problem of induction, and it spurred him on to start thinking and writing and give a response to Hume. Before we dive into Kant's theory of knowledge, please watch the following video from Wi-Fi on Kant on metaphysical knowledge for context. As you watch, please write down definitions or just take careful note mentally if you're not writing for the following four terms, a posteriori, a priori, analytic, synthetic. And again, an aside for my listeners, I'm guessing that you're not going to pause and go watch this video, but I do recommend watching it. Um, Kant is also a very technical philosopher, by which I mean he has a lot of pretty specific terminology and vocabulary, um, and it can take a second to adjust to that. So as with a lot of people we're studying in this class, you're going to want to plan to go over it a couple of times um, in order to get at least some level of comfortable with it. I don't expect you to be an expert Kant scholar by the end of this class, but some level of comfort is totally doable and what we want to strive for here. Okay, so unpacking. Hopefully you remember a priori and a posteriori from the earlier lecture notes on Hume, but a brief recap. A priori refers to knowledge gained prior to experience. You can kind of see the, la uh, the English word prior in the Latin word priori. A priori claims are known purely through reason. A posteriori refers to knowledge gained after or through experience. Think post as in after. Okay, now a new set of claims, analytic and synthetic. An analytic claim is a statement in which the predicate is contained within the subject. For example, take the sentence, all bachelors are unmarried men. 
This statement is true because the subject, bachelors, contains by definition the predicate, unmarried man. Being an unmarried man just is what defines being a bachelor. Analytic statements, while they are true, do not really add to our knowledge. We don't learn anything new from analytic truths. In a synthetic claim, on the other hand, the predicate adds information that is not contained within the subject. For instance, all bachelors are shorter than 50 feet tall is a synthetic truth. Being shorter than 50 feet tall is not part of the definition of a bachelor. Thus, synthetic truths do add to our knowledge and give us genuine information about the world. Having defined these four kinds of claims, let's consider how they relate to each other. Um, I'm going to try to describe this little chart I have in the notes. So there's just a little, um, like a little table with four boxes. Um, and across the top, the first column is labeled a priori, the second column a posteriori, and then on the left hand, the rows are laid first, rows are labeled first analytic and then synthetic. So in the box that corresponds to both a priori, the column and analytic, the row, an example of an analytic a priori claim is all bachelors are unmarried men. This is known by reason prior to experience, and it's an analytic claim because it's true by definition. Now let's move over uh, one box to the right to analytic a posteriori claims. Well, this is impossible. <laughs> you can't have a claim that is both analytic, true by definition, and a posteriori learned from experience or through experience. All right, bottom row. Synthetic a priori. I'm going to set that one aside for a second. Synthetic a posteriori. Anything we know through experience. So <laughs> probably the majority of your knowledge actually goes here. For example, all bachelors are under 50 feet tall. That would be an example of a synthetic a posteriori claim. Okay, now let's go back to synthetic a priori. I have a bunch of question marks in this box. And the reason for all the question marks there is because this is the question Kant sets himself for his epistemology. Is it possible for us to know anything through reason prior to experience, so thus a priori, that is not analytic? Because if it's analytic, it's trivially, tr trivially true, definitionally true. Sorry, I can't speak. In other words, it's not really a big deal if reason can figure out things like all bachelors are unmarried men all on its own without experience, because this claim doesn't give us any new knowledge whatsoever. But what if reason could figure out synthetic claims prior to experience, claims in which the predicate adds something new to the subject and a new concept is introduced? In particular, Kant aims to defend the possibility of there being synthetic a priori knowledge of things like causality because this will allow him to respond to and refute Hume's skepticism. If our mind can have knowledge of causal principles like the future will resemble the past prior to experience, then we can give an answer to Hume's problem of induction and we can have knowledge of causal relationships after all, which of course would then undergird scientific knowledge in general. Okay, so subsection A, Kant's Copernican revolution. So how will Kant carry out this project? How would you even go about the super abstract task of showing that synthetic a priori knowledge is possible? Remember learning about Copernicus? From that discussion and module, you might, re might remember that Copernicus proposed that the earth revolves around the sun, not vice versa, which was in his time a revolutionary view. 
Kant is often described as bringing about a Copernican revolution in epistemology, since on Kant's view, in order to explain how it's possible to have knowledge of the world, we should focus not on the world, as you might think, but first focused on the mind. In particular, Kant's method here is known as the transcendental method. This method means looking for the universal and necessary features of all experience as such. Or, in more plain language, the transcendental method asks us to imagine a particular experience and then consider what structural features are necessary for that experience to have occurred. If it's impossible to imagine that experience without a certain structural feature, then the structural feature is a necessary condition of that experience. What do I mean by structural feature? Okay, try to imagine a world where there are objects but no space, no dimensions. Look around you. Can you imagine your phone, coffee cup, backpack, car, trees, etc. not existing in space in three dimensions? Probably not. The idea of experiencing an object without space makes no sense to us. Thus, space is one of the structural features Kant identifies as a necessary condition of experience. For us to have experience of an object, we must first have the structural feature of space. Other structural features of experience include time, substance, and causality, although this list is not exhaustive. In other words, Kant argues that we can have knowledge of synthetic a priori principles, like all events have a cause, because such principles are necessary structural features of our experience. Without them, experience would not be possible. Remember that for Hume, causal claims are not part of the actual experience, that collection of sensation that we experience. So for example, when we touch a fire and feel a burning sensation, the causal claim, the fire caused the burn, is not itself a part of the experience according to Hume. The experience is made up of sensations like the sight of flames, perhaps hearing the fire crackle, maybe smelling smoke, and then the sensation of heat followed by a searing burn. But nowhere in this collection of sensory impressions is the causal principle, the fire caused the burn. This is something separate and outside of the literal experience understood as sensations. But Kant wants to defend the possibility of having causal knowledge of claims like, when you touch a fire, it will burn. So if this principle doesn't come from experience itself, where does it come from? The mind. However, although Kant argues that causality is a concept of the mind that structures experience, he is not saying that we have innate knowledge of facts like touching a fire will cause a burn. Rather, Kant distinguishes between the synthetic a priori claim, all events have a cause, which remember a priori mean that that can be known prior to experience, and contingent truths we're able to know because of this synthetic a priori claim that structures our experience. For example, every time you touch a fire, it will cause a burn. In other words, because all events have a cause is a synthetic a priori claim, we can therefore have knowledge of the contingent a posteriori claim every time you touch a fire, it will cause a burn, because our experience in general is ordered according to causal patterns. Subsection B, between empiricism and rationalism. So we know that Kant thinks it's possible to have synthetic a priori knowledge. And we know that he, against Hume, thinks that we can have knowledge of, for instance, causality, because causality is a necessary condition of experience. But you still might be thinking, how does this work? What does this mean? Is conscious saying that your mind decides to believe in statements like every event has a cause and the future will resemble the past and therefore those statements are true and foundational to all of your experience? Not quite. Consider this famous quote from Kant. 
Thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. It's from the Critique of Pure Reason. And I'm going to read it again. Thoughts without content are empty. Intuitions without concepts are blind. In order to understand this quote, you need to have some sense of Kantian vocabulary. For Kant, thoughts refers to the mind and reason. Content is something we get from experience. Intuition is also something from experience, whereas concepts belong to the mind and reason. In other words, Kant is saying that in order to have knowledge, we must have both the mind or reason and experience. Without experience, our thoughts and our reason are utterly empty. Principles like every event has a cause are empty unless we apply them to particular experiences to conclude things like this painful burning on my finger is caused by the fire I just touched, or even this poor grade I received on my exam was caused by me guessing on all the answers, which was caused by me not having knowledge of the answers, which was caused by me not studying. But on the other hand, neither is plain experience enough. Kant thinks that if we didn't have the mind and reason to actively structure and interpret our experience, experience would just be like a waterfall of sensory input dumping down on us. It wouldn't mean anything, and we certainly wouldn't get any knowledge from it. Thus, in this sense, Kant is both an empiricist and a rationalist, or perhaps we could say that he tries to reconcile these two traditions. He says we cannot have knowledge without experience, but that experience without active structuring from the mind is not going to lead to knowledge. You have to be careful to not too heavily rely on this metaphor, but I will leave you with the following metaphor for understanding Kant's epistemology. For Kant, the rational mind is like a pair of goggles or glasses that we can never take off. But without these glasses or goggles, we could not understand and certainly could not gain knowledge from our experience because it would just be a blur of undifferentiated sensory impressions. But knowledge nonetheless requires experience and the rational mind. Subsection C, Kant's transcendental idealism. Let's stick with this glasses metaphor or goggles metaphor for just a little bit longer. Although I said above that you couldn't take these mind glasses off, you might wonder, but what would the world be like if I could take the glasses off? In other words, what are objects like in themselves, independent and separate from my mind's perception of them? Kant has a special label for this, noumena. Noumena are things in themselves. Kant says we don't have access to noumena and they are unintelligible to our mind. However, Kant recognizes that we have almost this ingrained curiosity or drive to access the noumena, but Kant thinks this is a foolish endeavor and that we ought to chasten and restrain our minds. After all, by definition, how could our minds apprehend objects as they are independent of our minds? Any access we have to objects is always through our minds. Another way you might think about this is to put it in terms of a divine mind. If God exists, then God would be the kind of being that has access to things in themselves. God would have the full and final picture of how things are in themselves. But for us, for humans, we have only a very limited and very human perspective. Our permanent glasses, i.e. our rational mind, is always the lens through which we access the world, and we can never access or understand things outside of that lens. So in contrast to noumena are phenomena. Phenomena are things as they appear to us. 
Kant thinks that for all practical purposes, the real world just is the phenomenal world, the world as it appears to human minds. Again, Kant says that we have this drive or curiosity to know about the noumenal world, but that chasing after knowledge of the noumenal world is a mistaken project because it takes human reason outside of its own proper bounds. But there's also a kind of practicality in Kant's embrace of the phenomenal world. Kant is to some degree saying, look humans, why are we so obsessed about finding the God's eye view of the universe? We're humans. Of course, we're never going to get outside of a human view of the world. So let's stop obsessing about it and trying to overcome our own human reason. Our knowledge of the world is always going to be a human knowledge. This label for Kant's view about reality is known as transcendental idealism.